0: Hello and welcome to a BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Howard Ryland, I am the trainee editor of BJ Psych Advances and today I'm very fortunate to be joined by Dr James McCabe who is a reader in the epidemiology of psychosis at King's College London and we will be discussing his recent paper on personalised approaches to pharmacotherapy for schizophrenia. James, Thank you very much for talking to me about this hot topic.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Great. I mean, personalized medicine has been making headlines recently as people are beginning to realize its potential to harness advances in science, but I think there can be some misunderstanding about exactly what it means. How would you describe what personalized medicine is?
1: Yes, well, first of all, there are a lot of different um, sort of synonymous terms or more or less synonymous terms to describe uh, very similar concepts. So personalised medicine is the term that um, has sort of risen to the fore recently, Um, although I actually don't really like the term personalised medicine because I think that it um, perhaps promises a bit too much uh, in that what we're really dealing with at the moment or what we're trying to develop Is uh, stratified medicine. So the difference being that stratified medicine uh, is where you're dividing people into perhaps two or three strata or or categories. Whereas I think terms like personalised or tailored therapeutics make it makes it sound like it's going to be a medicine sort of specially made just for you, which isn't really what um, we're, we're going to be able to do at any point in the foreseeable future. So. Uh, stratified medicine really is uh, the idea I mean a good analogy is actually with uh, with tailoring and 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 clothes so at the moment um, our approach to um, choosing a drug for schizophrenia is a little bit like walking into a clothes shop and then just trying clothes on at random until you happen to find some clothes that fit you personalized medicine is really just having a Having a very broad sort of uh, sizing structure within that analogy, so that you might have a sort of small, medium, and large, um, and that might correspond in, in in terms of medication to, you know, going down different routes of different antipsychotics.
0: I think that's a, a really lovely metaphor and one that really brings it to, to life. Uh, I mean, when when people think about using biomarkers to try to tailor treatment, I mean they they might not immediately think about psychiatric conditions. Uh, How has personalised medicine been developing in other specialties and what can we learn from uh, what's happening in those other areas uh, that we can bring into mental health research?
1: Yes, I mean, the the term personalised medicine has been relatively recent, but uh, people have been um, subdividing, uh, disorders which were previously thought to be unitary into different subcategories for um, for many years. I mean, an early example would have been diabetes. Um, prior to the understanding that there was that there were two types of diabetes, uh, all diabetes was just was just considered as one diagnostic category, and then the understanding that there was that there were actually two very different forms with different etiologies and with different treatments. Um, was a huge advance in uh, in the field of, uh, of of diabetes and endocrinology. Uh, similarly, in rheumatology, um, uh, arthritis used to be just seen as one condition until it was then discovered that there were different autoimmune um, etiologies for rheumatoid arthritis as opposed to osteoarthritis, etc. Um, so the idea has been um, has been around for a long time. Um, I think the uh, the field where it's had the most success recently is in the field of oncology and i suppose the poster child for personalized medicine in cancer research is the uh is with um, herceptin uh so uh that's um uh, trastuzumab uh is the is is a generic name for it um it was approved in 1998 so it's got almost 20 years ago now um and this was when it was discovered that in breast cancer uh, there was a uh, there was a particular subtype so breast cancers that uh, that express a particular uh, receptor called the her two receptor and that if you had that particular subtype then your cancer was likely to respond to this new drug um herceptin um whereas if you didn't have th- if you weren't expressing or if your cancer wasn't expressing that uh, That protein, then adding her would only just add side effects and wouldn 't actually improve your your therapeutic outcome and then that that sort of approach has been used in, um, in other fields of cancer since then, of course, psychiatry is a lot more is a lot more complicated than that, and uh, you know the the biology of cancer um, is complicated in itself, but compared to schizophrenia. You know, we're a lot more advanced in our understanding of the biology of cancer, and it is that you know the therapeutic target in cancer is is fairly straightforward. You basically just want to stop the cells dividing, uh, whilst preserving health healthy cells. Um, whereas in schizophrenia, we don't even understand what we really want to do in at a, at a biological level. Um, so it's a it's a, it's a much more um, difficult uh, task in 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 schizophrenia or in mental health generally. Um, and it's something that we'll have to approach in a much more empirical way, perhaps, and a less kind of, um, perhaps sort of biologically, uh, not, we, we may not be able to approach it in a way that's driven primarily through biological insights. It may be a, a kind of uh, an empirical approach where we, where we look for genetic markers which, uh, which distinguish between different subtypes of disease and, and then from there try to understand what the different mechanisms might be underlying those subtypes.
0: So, as you say, the case of Herceptin in oncology, we're actually quite a long way down the line, and that case for personalised medicine is much more advanced. But what's the rationale for personalised medicine approaches in schizophrenia?
1: Well, I think schizophrenia is, uh, in some ways, it's, uh, it's, it's a kind of perfect... Disorder to, uh, to benefit from this approach. Um, firstly, we know how heterogeneous uh, schizophrenia is. Uh, so, you can have two different people who sch- uh, both have a diagnosis of schizophrenia and they might be suffering from completely different uh, symptoms, and they also might have completely different etiologies. One person might have a genetic etiology, the other one might have uh, an environmental etiology, and, uh, and of course, there are people who've got a combination. Uh, and we also know that there's a great uh, deal of heterogeneity in clinical response, so for reasons which we don't yet understand, one one particular patient might respond very well to aripiprazole while another one deteriorates when they're given aripiprazole. Some people might um, become treatment resistant and then only respond to clozapine while other people will respond to um, more or less any antipsychotic uh, that they take. Uh, and similarly with side effects, um, some people can take olanzapine quite happily without gaining weight. Um, other people can, you know, can, can gain weight very rapidly on it. So, uh, so I think the heterogeneity of um, of, of schizophrenia is uh, makes it uh, sort of ripe for a a personalised medicine approach. Um, I think also the fact that schizophrenia has such high cost and Morbidity associated with uh, with treatment failure, um, and when somebody is uh, because it's um, a very uh, disease with an early onset and with a very um, devastating impact on uh, on people's lives. If somebody doesn't respond to schizo- uh, to, to um, treatment in schizophrenia, then it, the the impact can be you know 30, 40, 50 years of, um, uh, of illness.
0: What we've seen over the last few decades is a a huge expansion in our understanding of the genetic basis that underlie both illness but also the desired and the adverse effects of medications. How does this apply to schizophrenia and how can we target this clinically?
1: Yes, well the genetics of schizophrenia has progressed uh, very rapidly recently. Um, although it's still, paradoxically, in its infancy. So it's really only two years since we had the the first big uh, GWAS, genome-wide association study, which found uh, 108, and it's now increased beyond that, um, uh, genome-wide significant uh, hits for schizophrenia. So uh, we've done some work where we've looked at, uh, in collaboration with colleagues from uh, the University of Cardiff, where we've looked at... The genetics of treatment-resistant schizophrenia, uh, where we've compared people with treatment-resistant schizophrenia, in other words, people on clozapine, to patients with uh, with with schizophrenia more generally, and we found that there was there were actually um, a very similar set of hits. So doing a GWAS showed very similar hits, but uh, there were some uh, some hits that were in the treatment-resistant patients who weren't in the generic patients. Uh, so that's suggesting that there are that there may be some uh some genetic leads uh, that we could follow uh, in terms of understanding the mechanisms of treatment resistance. Uh, one difficulty I think potentially is that uh, I suspect that treatment resistance is probably um, in itself a heterogeneous population in fact maybe even more heterogeneous than schizophrenia generally so it may be that within schizophrenia there's a relatively large Proportion, uh, sort of sixty or seventy percent of patients who simply respond to standard antipsychotics, but then with that uh, within that other thirty percent of people who are treatment resistant, um, it may be that there are several different subtypes which have different biological um, backgrounds, and uh, that we need to uh, really understand what the what what those different uh, subtypes are.
0: So it seems that the more that we know about schizophrenia the the more complex uh, condition and more heterogeneous it becomes but it sounds as if there are potential targets that that could be looked at into the the future.
1: Yes that's right and I think there's also a danger there actually because um, uh, when we're trying to encourage uh, pharmaceutical companies to develop treatments for these disorders uh, in the eyes of pharmaceutical companies of course they're looking at their profit margin and they want to develop a drug that's going to be uh going to be indicated in in a large um, proportion of people with schizophrenia um, whereas if we stu- the more we subdivide it into into smaller and smaller uh, divisions the less uh, impetus there will be for drug companies to develop treatments for those very small subtypes simply because they see it as a as a small market
0: So even though it may seem as if personalized medicine has a lot to offer, there are some some risks and some pitfalls, Uh, are there any other implications either for the individuals who are tested or engaged with these processes or or for the wider system?
1: Yes, I mean I think uh, uh, the whole idea of personalized medicine that you would be uh, you would have your treatment choices dictated by by an algorithm um, or, or by a genetic test really goes against the um the, the, the ethos of of patient choice in medicine um so interestingly, if you ask people whether they whether they want to have choice in their in their treatments then of course people will say yes uh equally if you say if it was a test um, that could show you um that could provide you with a treatment that was more tailored to your to your own condition again people say yes but of course you know those those two things do contradict one another Um, and also I think there's potentially going to be some sort of pushback from clinicians because it it goes against um, you know the the sort of traditional medical autonomy uh, which um, you know some people might think well that's a good it's it's good to push back against that because that's just a sort of paternalistic um idea uh, but there's also um i think you know some genuine uh, sort of subtle input that clinicians can have for example if you um if you have a patient who has uh you know responded to a particular medications in the past has had Uh, particular adverse effects to particular medications in the past. There may be idiosyncratic things about that patient. For example, you might have a patient who uh, won't take any drug with a Z in the name because it's associated with zombies or something like that. So integrating all of those different elements um, is something that I I don't think any algorithm is going to be able to do anytime soon. So I think there always will be a place for clinical judgment um, and there will also be a place for ch- uh, for patient choice, and it's uh, the, the the difficulty is trying to trying to integrate all of those things with a model where uh, where essentially the, the the choice is given over to a kind of computer computer algorithm.
0: So lots of potential with this, but also some potential risks that we need to be aware of. And it's it's good to hear that. That fundamental relationship between the doctor and the patient will still have a role in this in this brave new world. We've had a lot of interest that's been focused on the potential of a genetics uh, to provide clinicians with these tools to make treatment more effective um, but what other possible biomarkers are there that could help to, to guide decisions?
1: Well. Some of the biomarkers that we're exploring at the moment uh, include neuroimaging markers and particularly neurochemical imaging. Um, So some of my colleagues at the Institute of Psychiatry um, have got some very interesting uh, findings where uh, patients who have uh, treatment resistance um, seem to have an elevated uh, level of glutamate uh, in their anterior cingulate cortex whereas people who are treatment-responsive have a relatively normal level. Uh, And by contrast, when you look at their dopamine uh, turnover using PET imaging, uh, you find that people with treatment-resistance actually have a relatively normal dopamine, whereas people who are treatment-responsive have uh, an increased dopamine turnover um, so this suggests, um, perhaps perhaps this is too, too simplistic a way to look at it, but it suggests that there might be two subtypes, uh, a sort of dopamine-responsive subtype who are uh, the treatment, what we call treatment-responsive, who will respond to uh, non clozapine antipsychotics, and then a treatment-resistant con- uh, subtype who might respond to clozapine, and there's, there is, there's some evidence that clozapine has effects on the glutamate system, uh, or who might... Uh, respond to uh, drugs that uh, that target glutamate receptors.
0: So that's very exciting that actually there may be very different types of, of schizophrenia within this umbrella term that we term schizophrenia, and you were saying about how very different individual patients' experiences can be, and actually the underlying biology might also be different, and this may offer... Opportunities for us to actually more effectively target those symptoms and, uh, and provide hope for people who actually have uh, really resistant illness yes. to, to our current therapies.
1: Indeed, and, and also uh, it may be possible that, as I mentioned earlier, we, we know that the etiology of schizophrenia is very complex and that there are genetic and environmental. Uh, risk factors some of the environmental risk factors are social ones uh, like uh, uh, trauma for example uh, so it may be that uh, that the different etiological factors actually give rise to different uh, to, to, to forms of the illness or different sort of subtypes which might respond to different treatments uh, so it might be I mean we've been, we've been talking primarily about medication but uh, it might be for example that there's a subtype which are traumagenic so um, people who've suffered trauma in their in their childhood which we now know is associated with schizophrenia and it may be that for those patients um, a psychotherapeutic approach might be uh, might be perhaps more appropriate.
0: We touched a little bit on the effect of adverse reactions and side effects and uh, we know that these are one of the major causes that lead to non-adherence of medications uh, I think across the board but particularly in, in psychiatric illness and schizophrenia specifically uh, what are the most promising areas that biomarkers could help with in in terms of avoiding some of these undesirable complications in this area?
1: Well I think probably the most progress has been made um, with with weight gain and the the pharmacogenetics of weight gain. And that, of course, is a very prevalent um, and very problematic um, adverse effect. Uh, and there have been a number of studies and uh, several different uh, genetic markers which, uh, which are able to predict uh, people's, people's propensity to weight gain. A lot of effort has also been put into uh, looking for markers of predicting agranulocytosis in clozapine treated patients. Um, that's also been quite successful in that uh, in that markers have been found, particularly uh, HLA markers, um, which have got uh, reasonably good degrees of uh, um, of precision in terms of in terms of prediction. Uh, but the problem with that is that uh, we have actually done some uh, some modelling on this ourselves on looking at how sensitive and specific. A test would have to be to really to be able to do away with um, uh, hematological mod- monitoring, which would of course be the be, be the goal. Um, so, so in other words, to identify people who are at such low risk of agranulocytosis that you could that you could say that their their risk is effectively population level, and therefore uh, they wouldn't need to undergo uh, blood testing. Um, and it turns out that actually it would have to be extremely accurate in order to be able to do that. Um, and to get that through regulators like the MHRA um, is going to be is going to be difficult. I think uh, there's a curious sort of paradox here because, uh, in fact, we've done some uh, some work as well on uh, mortality on clozapine, uh, which uh, some work uh, in in Denmark, which is uh, um, which has shown that uh, when people take clozapine. Their mortality is much reduced compared uh, compared to when they're on other other medications, and there are several other studies which have shown which have shown similar things. Um, and if you if you actually look at the um, the reduction in mortality that's conferred by clozapine in terms of reducing suicides, um, that far outweighs any any risks of uh, agranulocytosis. But the problem is that when when a life is saved by clozapine through somebody not committing suicide, that isn't attributed to the, uh, to the drug necessarily, whereas if somebody dies on clozapine because they've got an agranulocytosis, then the finger points very directly to the drug.
0: Aside from the complexity of developing tests that are sufficiently accurate to be clinically useful, one of the major barriers we've seen is the, the high cost that can be associated with many of these tests. I mean these costs may well reduce as technology advances but what, what do we know about the, the cost effectiveness of personalised approaches generally and specifically in mental health?
1: Well again this is an area where we're doing a lot of work with our colleagues in health economics. Um, I think the, the point to realise about schizophrenia is that uh, because it's, it has such an early onset and, and the disease is so de- devastating. Just, just having one person uh, moving from being treatment-resistant to being treatment-responsive at a relatively young age uh, basically has an enormous impact in terms of their, um, not, not just their health care costs um, uh, over, the, over the next 40 or 50 years, uh, but also their pro- productivity uh, and their ability to work, etc. And so, uh, so if you look at it in stark economic terms, it is actually not that difficult to, to pass the threshold of being, of being uh, um, sort of economically um, advantageous. So you don't need... I mean, our modelling at the moment is suggesting that te- a test with a sensitivity and specificity, both around the sort of 60 or 70% uh, mark, uh, would be, would be cost-effective. Um, and that's for a test of uh, costing £500. Pounds. Um, and we use that figure because that's roughly the cost of some of the imaging, uh, the cost of some of the imaging tests that we're looking at. Uh, of course, the genetic test would be would, would be a lot cheaper than that, and and the the costs of all of these tests would uh, would start to reduce. So I think the um, uh, the prospects of, uh, of of a test being sort of economically uh, worthwhile are are quite. Um, I feel quite optimistic about that.
0: So these. Tests are potentially within our reach and have the ability to really transform the course of somebody's illness if we're able to get that right.
1: Yeah, and I think even a test which, um, which, was, which was only um, slightly improving our ability to, uh, to distinguish or, or, or to, to prescribe the right drug to the right person um might still have a uh, uh you know positive impact in the long term.
0: James, thank you very much for such an illuminating and an erudite introduction to, to what is a highly complex but really exciting and uh, constantly evolving field. Just finally I would like to ask you how do you envisage the future?
1: Well if we stick with uh schizophrenia, um I think that uh, first of all the question of when we would when in the course of somebody's illness we might apply a kind of um a personalized medicine or stratified medicine approach i think that um we know that about 70% of people respond to their first antipsychotic um so it's probable that at least for the for the foreseeable future uh, that's still going to be the rationale that we'll still prescribe somebody with an antipsychotic uh, first line, and then uh, and and then monitor their response. Um, I think probably at the point when somebody uh, fails to respond to their first antipsychotic, that's that's the most likely time when when pharmacogenetics or ph- uh, or a personalised medicine approach is going to become useful, uh, because we know that when somebody has their second antipsychotic. Uh, the response rate goes way down to about twenty uh, percent, according to one study. So, uh, so I think that's where we'll we'll perhaps look at pharmacogenetic or other other personalised medicine approaches. I think in, at the moment, in the absence of any new drugs uh, at the moment, the most likely way that this would go in the near future would be in in terms of clozapine and predicting people who are. Um, who should be sort of fast tracked onto clozapine because they're less likely to respond to other things and more likely to respond to that, um, and so that's that's perhaps the the the, the kind of low hanging fruit. Um, and then in future, um, of course, we're all very feeling a bit pessimistic at the moment about the uh, about drug development in schizophrenia because there've been some notable failures recently. Um, uh, but there are some promising drugs coming onto the on, onto the scene, uh, the cannabinoids, for example. Uh, so it may be that, um, uh, that when those drugs uh, come to fru- fruition, uh, that we'll be able to use personalized medicine approaches to determine which people should be prescribed those drugs and which people are most likely to respond to them and less likely to have uh, adverse effects.
0: Fantastic. James, thank you very much.
1: Thank you.